Morning, Christ Church. And happy 4th of July weekend. You, uh, you're the remnant. Everybody, you know, people go away for the weekend, and uh, you are the remnant who are here this Sunday morning, and God has a special blessing for the remnant, he says. So. And I also want to welcome everybody who's here, um, kindergarten through fifth grade. If you're in the room right now, you usually go to Kids Quest, but you're with us today. And so I just want to say to all of you, kindergarten through fifth, welcome. We're so glad that you're worshiping with us today. And our teams for our children's ministry, they're taking a break today and for the next couple of weeks at the end of this year and before the big fall, they're preparing for the next fall kickoff as uh, we gear up for the August ramping uh, up into school and all of that. So welcome all of you kids who are with us today. If I had to give a title to today's message, and we don't really do titles, but uh, if I did give a title, it would be this, God, Heaven, and Earth which is basically everything. So um, we're going to cover a lot of ground today. And we've been in this series, and I'll kind of place, what, what do I mean, what, what is it about God, heaven, and earth that we're going to be getting to? Um, but the past four weeks, we've been laying kind of the foundation and looking at how humans everywhere and through all time have yearnings that are connected to these things, and we've talked about it in this language of echoes of a voice. Humans everywhere have this yearning for relationship, the spirituality, for justice, for beauty, and this is common to all humanity. And we've been using that language of echoes of a voice because these aren't the voice, but they speak to us of something beyond, something greater, something more than mere atoms and molecules that make up our existence. And these echoes indicate a, a voice, and we as Christians believe that voice belongs to God. And the Christian story claims to be the true story about God in the world. Before we get into this a little bit further, God, heaven, and earth, and where we're going with the God part of this, what I said last week was we're establishing kind of like this, this cry of the heart for God. We're going to step, beginning today, into the story of God and Israel, and then into the church and Jesus, and so that's the rest of the summer. So today's that pivot moment where we turn from like this human longings where there's an echo of the voice, all of us bearing God's image, actually into the story of God and his interaction with the world. All right, let's talk about God to begin with. I want to establish a few kind of things. So like even this word can be a little problematic, God, because we use it sometimes as a generic noun to talk about divinity. And we'll use it about, as Christians, we'll use it about the God of the scriptures. But we also use the word God to talk about like the gods of the Greek pantheon, or we use it in, in that generic way. We use it as a proper name also. So sometimes we'll be talking to God and we will address him um, personally by name with that word God. But here I want to I establish a little bit of, of, I mean, clear the air a little bit about what we're talking about. God is not an object in the universe alongside all the other objects of the universe that somehow if we had, you know how we have global positioning systems, GPS, the whole earth is kind of mapped out, and you could pinpoint anywhere on the earth using the GPS, and there would be coordinates that could identify a spot. If we had something like that, this would be amazing, maybe it exists, for the cosmos, a cosmic positioning system. 
And the whole universe was mapped out that way, and you could, by coordinates, you could identify any spot within the entire universe. What I'm saying about God is that you would not be able to apply any coordinates to God. He doesn't exist as an object within the universe in that sense. He is the creator of the universe and transcends it. He is above and beyond it and within it. But he's not like a butterfly specimen that you can pin to the board and inspect and study and understand and define and break down in all the same ways that you can something like a butterfly. Rather than this kind of space-time language for talking about God and where is God, to talk about the existence of God, we have to find other ways of imagining his existence. And so we use terms like realm or dimension. God exists in another space, realm, dimension that interacts with this one, which we'll get to in a moment. What about heaven and earth? What are the heavens? The heavens um, are that space, realm, dimension where God exists. Now, we in common language and all we have is human language and human language falls short of the mystery and might of God, but it's what we have and it's what God's given us and he's revealed himself to us in language. So we use this language that even though it falls short, can give some kind of description. So we talk about heaven and again, we talk about it as a place, but it's not something you could like, if we just had a spaceship that could travel safely throughout the entire universe long and far enough, you know, one of these days we might just look out the window and go, oh, there's heaven. We just passed it. It doesn't exist as a place located within the universe in the same way that God doesn't exist in that way. But heaven is the realm, the space, the dimension where God dwells. That's what heaven is. And earth is the space or realm where humans dwell. So heaven and earth, that's what we're referring to. Now we'll often refer, again, because we're humans and we can only use analogies to understand how anything works, we talk about heaven being up. But it's not literally up, because up right now is down for the upper, other side of the globe, and where is, where is up even? So we're talking again about God is in a dimension, space, realm, and where he is, that is what we call heaven. This is called earth. Now, what do they have to do with each other? How do heaven, how do the heavens and the earth relate to each other, interact with each other? And there are three ways that I'm going to talk about this morning about how God's space or realm and ours relate to each other. These represent three different worldviews, the kind of classic worldviews. These are not just kind of like a Christian way of talking about it, they get, but they go all the way back to the ancient world, and you can look at some of the Greek, Roman philosophers and the ways that they would talk about the world. There's basically these ways of conceiving of it. So option number one, behind door number one, we have this one. How do these two realms relate to each other? Option one is they completely merge. They are the same thing. They, they are conflated. They, you make them more or less the same thing. Not only uh, God everywhere, but everywhere is God. 
Not only uh, God is everything, but everything is God. And we just kind of merge the two realms of heaven and earth together. This view is commonly called pantheism. You've probably heard that term as a familiar way. It's like shorthand to talk about this view. Now, in the ancient world, this grew out of kind of a Greek and Roman world of understanding of the gods in which there were many gods. There were the gods of the sea and gods of fire, gods of war, God, you know, all these different gods, and you know them by names like Zeus. And so uh, there's this whole like slew of gods. And then geographic features were also considered uh, to have divine status. So it'd be like the river would have divine status. The trees were divine. This started to get really complicated over time in kind of the, the ancient world and, and unwieldy. And, um, and so that led way to the development of this idea, kind of gave way to the idea that the divine was really just more like a force that is in everything. It became like a little bit easier way to kind of get a handle on this other realm. So it was cleaner. It was easier. God is, is in everything. So the goal for humans then was to kind of just get in touch with divine nature in everything and including ourselves. That became uh, the goal in this pantheistic way of viewing the world. Um, there are some problems with this view of the world. One of them is it really can't address, it has nothing to say to the problem of evil. Now that's a challenge for everybody, it's a challenge for us, but there is an ultimate hope that we have. In pantheism, it's difficult to see, first of all, God in absolutely everything, including cancer cells, mosquitoes, or tsunamis, or there, there's all kinds of things that if we think about this is God, and God is that, it starts to create some problems at that level. But secondly, and, and actually more to the heart, I think this is more comes from the heart as, as a challenge to this, is it's difficult to see God, uh, if, if, if God is in everything, in everything this world that we inhabit is full of suffering, then there's nowhere to turn for hope. There's nothing outside of this. This is it. And there's nowhere to go. When God is equated with the stuff of our earthly realm, then we have to resign ourselves to the suffering and evil of this world just as it is. There's, not, there's no higher court of appeals. There's no ultimate final hope. This is it. Wright puts it this way, and by the way, we are taking kind of the outline of his book, Simply Christian, to give the outline to our sermons this summer. And, um, and he says this in, the, in Simply Christian, nobody can come and rescue you. The world and the divine are what they are, and you'd better get used to it. The only final answer given by many Stoics in the first century and by increasing numbers in today's Western world is suicide. It's the only final answer. So this option number one is one, um, if you, you might be familiar with that term, Stoicism came to be a part of the Stoic worldview. All right, option number two, how do heaven and earth relate to each other? How do these realms relate to each other? Option number two is just the opposite. Hold them in complete separation. The God space realm and the human space realm are completely separate from each other. Now, in this view, the God or 
gods are in their heaven, whatever that is, and it's remote, and it's detached from this world, and they're enjoying themselves, but they don't mix in with what's happening here. In the ancient world, this became known as Epicureanism. We've got Stoicism, Epicureanism. These were two of the kind of major philosophies and worldviews in the early centuries of the first millennium. So in this view, the gods or gods are in their heaven, um, became known as Epicureanism. Humans are just meant to get used to being on our own here. The gods are not going to intervene. They're not going to come and help. They're not going to come and harm. That's actually some good news because the world of polytheism that all these gods, sometimes those gods would get offended because somebody didn't sacrifice to them and they would do harm to humans. Sometimes they would intervene and help. But in this view, they don't intervene at all. They don't do any harm and they don't any help. But they are there. They're just remote and distant. So what does that mean for humans? What are the implications of that for humans? Well, the best thing for humans to do, according to this view, is just to get on with life the best you can. Enjoy the pleasures of life in moderation, live a steady life, quiet life, and make the best of it. Now, sometimes Epicureanism gets a bad rap, and it's imagined that it's just all about indulgent hedonism, and that's not really, to be fair to them, what they were after. They thought the The greatest pleasures for humans would be in moderation, but still, it's the pleasures of life. Um, While you got it, while you're here, uh, go for it, and that's that's as good as it gets. So, this view also has some problems. Let me cover a couple of those. If you happen, if you happen to be well off, and you could afford good food and good wine and finer things and maybe have some servants to help take away the drudgery of life and buffer you from the harshness of life, if you are well off, then you might accept this view just fine. However, the vast majority of humanity is not in that position. If you're part of the majority of the population who experience the harshness of this world, unbuffered, then you're left with a world that is pretty dark and harsh. The only escape, again, is death, even suicide, or a kind of escapist spirituality to just kind of retreat to this esoteric uh, world created in the mind that really doesn't have anything to do with life here. So if if you've heard the term Gnosticism, these are the conditions that give birth to that Gnostic kind of views of the world, which it, it just says, this world right here that we're in um, is not good, and we have to escape to a kind of esoteric world created by our minds to connect with something spiritual or divine as some kind of escape from here, because whatever is in the world that's divine does not come and connect with our bodies or this earth, or history, or time, or community, or the goings-on of this world. All right. A version of this became really popular in the 18th century, and it went by the term deism. You might have come across this word. It's kind of a resurrection of some of this concept. And and by the term deism, what they meant is, what they were talking about is simply, God created the world... And then stayed separate from it, just like we were talking about the ancient church 
in the Epicureans would view, the separation of these worlds. And it's, there's the famous analogy of the clockmaker or watchmaker. So God created this intricate thing and got it all wound up for eternity, basically, and then stepped back never to intervene or enter its workings again. And it's just running on its own. God doesn't really have anything to do with us at this point. It does acknowledge that there's a creator out there, that there is a God, but it stops there. I go another step, um, perhaps even to say that this deistic view uh, we can even find sometimes among Christians who function in a deistic way, who live their life as if, even if their words might say something different, live their life as if God is just remote and doesn't have anything to do with this world. Tom Wright, again, says this about this perspective today. He says, that's why when many people say they believe in God, they will often add in the same breath that they don't go to church, that they don't pray, and in fact, they don't think much about God from one year's end to the next. I don't blame, blame them, he says. If I believed in a distant, remote God like that, I wouldn't get out of bed on a Sunday morning either. Another big problem with this view is that you, you have to just kind of plug your ears to the echoes we were just talking about. What do you do with these, these echoes of a voice that we, we experience, encounter, and we hear these echoes here and now, these yearnings? What do you do with that? You have to kind of plug your ears to those. So behind door number one, we have the pantheism that equates uh, our realm and God's realm as the same thing, making them the same thing, saying everything everywhere is God. Behind door number two. We have the complete separation of these two realms. They don't have anything to do with each other. They don't touch each other. Now, if you hear those two and you hunger for friendship and community, if you hear those two and you, yet you, you long for things wrong in this world to be made right and whole, if you have moments of awe and wonder Mystery, getting that sense that there's more to this world and life than meets the eye. And if you're moved by beauty, you'll be interested in the third option. So here we go, this one. This perspective says that heaven and earth are neither the same thing nor totally separate from each other. They are overlapping and interlocking. Overlapping and interlocking, heaven and earth come together. Let me go a little bit through Scripture and show how the Christian story, uh, and actually the Hebrew story, uh, tells this before we even get to Christ. Overlapping and interlocking. God makes his presence known on earth. Abraham, for example, had meetings with God, several conversations where he has with God, going back and forth, encounters with God, where there's this interaction between heaven and earth. Jacob sees a ladder between heaven and earth, connecting heaven and earth, and going up and down that ladder are angels. Angel, that word translates simply as messengers, going back and forth, connecting heaven and earth. Moses meets with God at the top of the earth, so to speak, at a mountaintop. He encounters the living God, interacts with God, connecting those two realms. And then Moses leads the people of Israel out into the desert. They're going through the wilderness, and in the wilderness, 
God leads them. He guides them at night as a pillar of fire. He guides them in day as a pillar of cloud. He's interacting with his people in that way. And then lastly, we see we see the very presence of God in the tent of meeting. It's also called a tabernacle. And this is as they were traveling along, God said, I want you to build this tabernacle. And he gave them some instructions for how to do it. And right there in the midst of his people, God dwelt. Sometimes called a tent of meeting, sometimes called a tabernacle. It's like a portable temple where the presence of God dwells here on earth. And then after that, they go into the promised land, and the primary focus for the overlap of heaven and earth is the actual temple. All right, so there's a run-through, Old Testament. All these places where we see God, the interlocking, interlocking, overlapping heaven and earth. Let's focus now on the temple, because for most of the Old Testament, that is the place that most symbolizes the presence of God. The Israelites believed that the temple was the home of the God of the universe. Some people might say, wait a minute, isn't heaven God's home? Well, this is where it starts to get interesting. The answer is yes, but heaven and earth are overlapping and interlocking, and the temple is that place where they connect. There are some traditions and rabbis throughout the centuries who would talk about this as the temple being like the navel of the church, you know, that connects the child, the infant, and the mother. The temple being like the navel, this life passes back and forth between heaven and earth. Now, of course, the temple could not hold this little box, little in the scale of the earth and the cosmos, this little box called the temple could not hold the God of the cosmos. The physical temple pointed to the fact that all of creation is God's temple. And that's actually what the first few chapters of the Bible are about. Genesis 1, for example. Let's look at, we've got some slides here that will show some of the, the things that you see paralleling between the garden, Genesis 1 and 2, and the temple. First of all, God speaks seven times in a series of seven days in chapter 1. And then his presence fills creation and he rests on the seventh day. The tabernacle and the temple were each built and dedicated in a series of seven speeches in seven days. And then the Israelite priest or king could inhabit that space, rest and rule in God's presence there in the temple. So all of creation is where God intends to dwell. The creation is like a temple. Let's go to the next, next slide. Chapter 2. Here we see in Genesis 2 another angle on the creation story. Chapter 2 zeroes in on the land that's been created. You know how in the chapter 1 you've got created the land, created the seas, created the birds, animals, so on. Here chapter 2 really has a focus on what's going on on the land. Zeroes in there. And in the center of the land is a region called Eden, which in Hebrew means delight. So that Eden is this region within the land. Now, in the middle of delight, God plants a garden. And in that garden is where God and humanity live together. So this is why the temple in Jerusalem was modeled after a garden filled with imagery of 
flowers and gold. The menorah symbolizes the tree of life. It's mirroring the garden, the garden mirroring the temple, the place where God dwells with his people. Lastly, also in the temple, the Israelites, uh, the priests and the, and the Levites, they were called to work and keep the land, the garden. So look at, the, look at those quotes around those two words. The priest's vocation was to work and keep the temple in God's presence. Those two words, those two verbs don't appear very much at all together like this. It's like this, this fixed phrase. It appears to describe the vocation of the priest in the temple. And guess where else it appears? In the garden to describe the human vocation in the temple garden. So humans are to be priests in the garden temple of creation, just like the priests are called to be to work and keep the temple. Work and keep the garden, work and keep the temple. So we see here this kind of like merging, heaven and earth come together. Our call is to be priests of creation, and all of creation is this temple where God dwells. Every week we come to this table and we offer up, it's kind of, we bring our offerings. We, can, we lift up the bread and the wine. We say these prayers, and one of the prayers we say every time is the Lord's Prayer. And in the Lord's Prayer, we say this, God, let your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. So what we're saying there is, God, would you let that overlapping, interlocking happen even more? Would you bring your presence and your way of ruling and caring and working in this world, would you bring that further in to this earth and the realm of us humans? Now, let's get a little bit more specific. And it might be for you that there's a particular relationship where that's a cry for your heart. In that relationship, you're saying, God, would you bring heaven to earth, that overlapping, interlocking presence of your kingdom into this relationship? more on earth in this relationship as it is in heaven or in my vocation or workplace or in our nation or our city or my neighborhood? Would you bring your kingdom here further overlapping and interlocking here on earth? Because with this view, heaven and earth coming together, we do have recourse. We can cry out We can cry out to a God that we believe does intervene at times, and even as we live with suffering and unmet longings and hopes and things that are broken, we have this hope that was held out for us, that the kingdom in fullness will come. You know, when Jesus uh, first started preaching, started his ministry, his first message Go to Mark chapter 1 and 2, like the first words, first sermons, first words out of his mouth were, the kingdom of God is at hand. Heaven is here, interlocking with earth, and he meant in his presence, in Jesus himself. You know, in John chapter 1, our gospel reading today, where it says, the word became flesh and he dwelt, he, heaven, God, dwelt among us. The word became flesh 
and dwelt. That word dwelt literally translates as he tabernacled among us. Where became flesh and he was the temple of God among us. He was the place where God dwells, where the glory of God, like the fire that came down upon the temple, the same fire upon Jesus. And then, remember, this temple imagery is so beautiful. Then, you remember in Acts chapter 2, when Jesus says, you will be my tw- the temple. He says, we are going to be the temple. And, of course, God can't be contained within us as his people any more than he can be contained within one box that we call the temple in Jerusalem. But he says, you guys are going to represent me in a special way, in a concentrated way. I'm going to dwell right there among you as my people. So that church, that where the temple, where we become the temple in Acts chapter 2, just as the fire came down upon the temple and the glory of God, so does it in Acts chapter 2. And the Holy Spirit falls upon like flames, falls upon the church. And we, the glory of God, indwelling, inhabiting us in his church. And then we're called to represent God to the world. That the world would, by encountering us, get a taste of the heavens. And that heaven would come down. So this is our prayer for us, Christ Church. This is our prayer for us as individuals. It's our prayer for our relationships, our families. It's a prayer for our church. Is that we would be a living uh, icon, tabernacle, presence of the living God that the world would encounter God through us. Our second reading today was from 1 Peter. And let's put this up there. It says, As you come to him, the living stone, rejected by humans but chosen by God and precious to him, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house. Anybody hearing temple language yet? To be a holy priesthood. Offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable, acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So he's kind of mixing the metaphor here to say we are both the temple and the priests. And so we are this place where God dwells, but we are also the ones who are priests of creation, offering up creation to God, to the praise of his glory. We're making things. With our minds and creativity, we're making things with our hands, we're, we're taking the stuff of the world and the stories of this world and we're, we're crafting and we're, we're offering it up to God as a living sacrifice and we're saying, God, we're priests of creation with our work and our life and our families and our relationships. We're priests and we're offering it all up to you as a living sacrifice. We're also offering up the brokenness of the world as intercessors who join with Jesus, the great high priest, who lives at the right hand of God to make intercession for us, and we join him in intercession, bringing with us as priests of creation all the brokenness and sin of creation and offering it up to him in intercession. And then as priests, we represent God to the world. Priests have that mediating role between creation and God, and so we represent God to the world We bring this world as an offering up to God. You might be familiar, oft-quoted, 
with Elizabeth Barrett Browning's poem and her famous line that says, Earth's crammed with heaven and every bush afire with God. Heaven's all around us and God dwells in the heavens and that means that he is here among us. This world that we're in is not itself God, but he is right here interlocking, overlapping to be encountered everywhere we turn. And the day will come that it will not just be overlap, overlapping and interlocking, but it will be face to face and in fullness. And that's called in the Bible, the new heavens and the new earth. Would you join me and let's pray and offer up these places in our lives where we want to see God's kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. God, we all bring with us things that we are so excited about this morning, celebrations, joys, gratitudes, and we offer that up to you. We thank you for ways that we've gotten a taste of heaven here on earth through your joy, your presence, your goodness, your beauty, your truth. We also cry out to you those places, from those places of pain, some of it of our own making as we rebelled against you or or decided to do things in our own way. And we offer up that parts of ourselves to you too. And we thank you that we can always come to you and know, know that you are eager to pour out mercy and grace. We bring to you the relationships, the work, employment, vocation, and finances. We bring to you the sickness and disease. We bring to you the sorrows of the people around us and in our city. And we offer this up to you. We, your priests, we offer this up to you. And we say, God, let your kingdom come in these places on earth right here as it is in heaven. In your name we pray. Amen.